Thank you, Julian, part of being a part of this church. They get to look around and learn from who dresses the best. And um, Julian is up there for sure. Um, I, I love preaching at this church. I have loved seeing the growth of this church over uh, the last 18 months. And um, today we are going to be talking on the topic of deliverance. Anybody know that our God is a delivering God? Okay, there's two of you excited. Don't worry, by the end you're all going to be excited. Um, as you may know, we have been going through the book of Exodus, um, and today we are going to be hitting on chapter 14. We're going to go there in a minute, um, but I just want you to close your eyes for a second. I just want to pray. You know, the Bible analogizes the Word of God as being like seed, seed that falls on soil, um, seed that can fall on bad soil, on good soil. And the Bible says that the soil in the parable is representative of our hearts. And actually, the Bible puts a lot of power on your response to the Word of God as to the extent in which it can impact your life. And so... I just want to pray over us that whatever comes from this word today would fall on good soil. Spirit of God, I pray for every heart in this room, people who have had the most incredible week of their lives, who are loving 2023, and for people whom this is an incredibly painful and difficult period of life, for whom they really found it a struggle to even come here today. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that your word would fall, Father, like fresh rain on people's hearts, that it would bear much fruit for the building of your kingdom, that it would cause us to love Jesus and to know him better and to build your kingdom in the city of Boston. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of chapter 14, as you may know, is about the Red Sea, and I'm sure many of you who have been around church understand the premise is that the Israelites have left Egypt and find themselves confronted with the Red Sea, an impassable object, and in short, God does the most remarkable miracle in parting the Red Sea and delivering his people out of oppression and a journey into the promised land. And I want you to know one simple takeaway, whatever your situation, whatever the impossibility, there is a God that is bigger, there is a God that cares for every part of your life that feels in bondage, that feels enslaved. God is a God of deliverance, church, and he is still working miracles, he is still healing the sick, he is still providing financial breakthrough, he is still bringing family members to Christ, and he is still bringing revival into cities. And in the midst of a remarkable miracle, um, there is, however, a process. And I want to talk to you today about the process of deliverance. And then we're going to touch really quickly on the end um, around what I've called the greatest deliverance. And we'll come to that. Um, but for now, turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 14. If you do not know where the book of Exodus is. Just ask a Christian, they'll tell you. <laughs> so, Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to start right at verse 1. And we're going to take different pauses, and we're going to talk about the process of deliverance. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Balzathon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. 
And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he'll pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh, his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. First part of what you may sometimes find in the process of deliverance is that God may ask you to do something really foolish. And so God specifically says to the Israelites who have managed to get out of Egypt to start wandering around a little bit lost in a very bizarre twist and turn pattern so that the Egyptians will start to pursue them. And you may turn around and say to the Lord, this really doesn't feel like this glamorous deliverance that you told me was going to come in my life. And yet, what I find with the way that God works through your life in terms of deliverance is there is an aspect in which you simply have to shrug and to trust God that his ways are simply higher than your ways. Some of you struggling with finances and God says, I want you to give big next week. Some of you really may struggle with loneliness and singleness and God says, I want you to organize a community group in your house and you know it's going to be a bunch of happy married couples who come along. Foolishness in the, eyes of, in, the, in the eyes of the world, but this is often the way of the kingdom. In the midst of deliverance, God is going to almost ask you to put your intellectual capacity on a pause and to walk by faith and dare even say, do something foolish. And God doesn't do this because he's interested in you feeling embarrassed. He's not interested in you squirming. But you see, your process of deliverance is going to become a testament in your life for the years to come. And you need to be able to look back and discern who was the Savior in my time of deliverance. And God will not even allow our competence to get us sometimes out of situations, lest we think we were the saviors back two years ago where I went through a hard time. Notice that the Israelites were walking out of Egypt pretty rich. The Bible says that they had taken a lot of gold and wealth from the Egyptians. And yet, notice that the wealth that they are carrying is absolutely useless to part a Red Sea. Moreover, their wealth is absolutely useless in terms of stopping an impending army. How frustrating that God blesses them abundantly, and it turns out their competence, their blessings are utterly useless against the problem that they find themselves facing. And you are going to come across, dare I say, in your walk with Christ, in your Christian life, circumstances where all of your competence, all of your brilliance, your excellence, your connections, your wealth, your intellect will feel entirely redundant in the face of what you have come across. And this is not because God enjoys us feeling uneasy or unashamed. It's because God will not allow us to take the glory for his deliverance. And so God begins by starting out with asking the Israelites to do something foolish. A verse in Jeremiah that I love. This is what the Lord says. This is Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom. Let not the strong boast of their strength. And let not the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast in this, that they have the understanding to know me. And this has been a consistent prayer in my life that, Lord, whatever I feel I have at my disposal, my ultimate boasting and foundation of confidence comes from the fact that I know you. And in this process, God has asked them to suspend all of their competence in order that they must simply follow a foolish command by wandering in circles. Great start to the crossing of the Red Sea. 
Move down to verse 10 in Exodus chapter 14. So the Israelites do this. They start wandering around, and Pharaoh and his army decide that, well, these folks really have no clue, and I'm really regretting letting these people leave my territory, and so we're going to go after and pursue them. Verse chapter, uh, 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. I want you to know that as part of your journey of faith sometimes, in the process of deliverance, things may look bad, things may get worse and not better. And in this moment of going through this deliverance that God has promised them, God has given them the word, and things are getting worse, the natural response, and this is the exact response the Israelites do, is they panic. There are some of you here today, some of you maybe listen online, and you're panicking. And the, Egypt, uh, and, and the Israelites panic, and they panic, and in the midst of their panic, they do what everybody who finds themselves panicking does, which is you run back to what you know. Even if what you know is harmful, even if what you know is an enslavement, even if what you know is less than what God has for you, you run back to what you know because at least it's familiar. And your familiarity is often a cover for the pain, for the frustration that you felt in that season, but at least it's familiar. How many of us run back to ways of living that we know are not helpful? How many of us go back to relationships that we know are unhealthy? How many of us go back to jobs, careers, and people that we don't intrinsically like, but at least they're familiar? And this is the danger of walking by faith, is that whenever you enter new territory, which is part of deliverance, it is a transition from one place to another. New territory always generates a level of anxiety. And panic exacerbates that anxiety to the point where you will just cling for anything that feels familiar. Anything that I can recognize. Anything that I know how it works, even if it hurts. And in the middle of their deliverance, the, Egypt, the Israelites decide to throw in the towel. They've had enough, and they want to go back to their oppressors. And the solution is very, very clear. If you look at right at the next verse that Moses says to them, he says two of the most <laughs> difficult things to say to people who are panicking, stand firm and be still. Every instinct in your body, in the process of deliverance, when you are panicking, when you are scared, I'm not going to cover the bills this month. My family is going from bad to worse. I cannot stand to turn up to my job on Monday. My sickness in my body is getting worse, and you're utterly panicking, and the last thing you want to hear from God is stand still, is stand firm, is do not move. We are not changing the script we are not changing the game plan. We are not changing the destination. Stand still. This is the hardest part sometimes in the process of deliverance. For many of you, the situation you're in, 
you find yourself doing anything you can to get new solutions. You're listening to anybody's sermon, everybody's new tapes, new books that come out. You think it's the truth that you don't know that's stopping you. And it's not. It's the truth that you do know that you've let go of. And for most parts of our Christian walk, it is not about trying to discover some new gem of wisdom that you've never heard of to fix your situation. It's about clinging to the thing that God has already told you and to stand on that. The Christian walk is not a sprint. It is an endurance race that requires us to stand on the truth so often that we have known since a child, but the difficulty is to stand Look at Christ when he gives the sermon of the, uh, the, the parable of the sower. The Bible says that seed is scattered among four different soils. And the last soil that produces the fruit, what does Jesus say? He says, those who receive the word and who by perseverance produce a good fruit. Much of the challenge of walking through a process of deliverance is not looking for some new truth. It's standing on what you already know. Samuel Johnson, the famous English philosopher, said that people need to be reminded more often than instructed. And I've said that several times because it's the point of the quote, to remind and not instruct. Often we can get so caught up in activism. We've got new ways to get out of our situation, new five-step plans to try and redeem ourselves, new three-step ways to get some counseling. And these things can be useful and these things can be constructive. But if your bedrock and your foundation is on those things in and of themselves, then God is to a lot. And from absolute learning myself, God will sometimes let you stay until you've learned what it is to stand still, to be firm, to trust that he is going to deliver you. One of the most practical, useful things I do if I find myself in a total panic and chaos and wondering where on earth God is, I find five scriptures that are relevant to my situation. I write them down, and every morning and every night, I quote those scriptures over and over and over again for months on end until I see God come through in that situation. I this is going to sound terrible. I hate reading those scriptures sometimes because I want to hear something new. I want God to give me something, anything. And you learn what it is to stand and see the deliverance of God. So we move down. Look at verse chapter, sorry, verse 19 here. So Moses says to the Israelites, we are not changing course. We are not changing plan. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of God. Then what happens? Exodus 14 verse 19. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, and neither went near the other all night long. What happens in the process of deliverance is that sometimes God will seem to have moved out of view. The cloud, which was the manifest presence of God, had traveled in front of the Israelites from the minute that they had left Egypt, and the hundreds of thousands of men and women and children were able to look and see the cloud in front of them and the presence of God directing them. And then in this moment, the cloud withdraws. It moves behind them. God has not left them. 
God has not forsaken them, but they can no longer see God anymore. And there may come a time in the process of your deliverance when you feel like God is MIA. And your temptation is to think that God has left. Your temptation is to think God is not interested. You come to church and you're in the midst of a financial battle. You're looking for a sermon to redeem your situation, some, some comfort to help you. And Katya stands up and starts preaching about sex. And you're like, Jesus, I just need a word. Julian prophesies over everybody in your row except you. And you're just like, Jesus, where are you? I know what it's like. I know what it's like to feel like God is M-I-A. The silence of God is a phrase that many of the great saints and sages of the ages have talked about in their own personal testimonies going through times of deliverance. I remember about four or five years ago, I was um, in an incredibly painful uh, part of my life, and most of my prayer life was simply screaming at God to make the pain stop and to get me out of a situation. And at that time, I, I remember hearing a a sermon that really stuck with me, and the title of the sermon was called The Parable of the Dog in the Eye. And the essence of the sermon was talking about the way in which we train new puppies and new dogs when it comes to having their food. When you get a new puppy, it is entirely uncontrollable. Screams and barks and woofs and howls and moans and cries until it gets what it wants. And a bad parent just simply lets the puppy run off and get the food whenever it wants, but a good parent eventually knows that that puppy needs to be put on a leash and to be kept and made to wait until it has learned to be quiet, to be silent, and to eventually trust that the food will come. And he spoke about how in his own life, God challenged him with the parable of the dog. And I realized that I was just like that dog, a little puppy screaming, moaning, crying to get the food, to give me what I want. And if I just scream louder, then maybe God will take more attention. And this is not easy sermon, I know, guys. This is not the easy part, but this is the real Christian walk sometimes in the process of deliverance. In the midst of pain, you still have to be able to hold still, to trust God, to not panic, to lean on him when you have no visible perspective of God at all in your life. It is in that moment where real maturity begins to grow in us. And I learned in that season what it was and I, to, to know that there was going to be a deliverance and yet see no discernible evidence of it coming at all. And to know what it was for the seemingly the presence of God to move from being in front of me to moving to be behind me. Listen to this story. This is from C.S. Lewis writing in his book, A Grief Observed. The time where there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time that God cannot give it. You are like a drowning man who cannot be helped because he clutches and grabs. People in lifeguarding will tell you it's very hard to save drowning people sometimes because they're totally panicked and they'll flail and they'll scream and they'll even sometimes run a risk of being a harm to the lifeguard. And sometimes in the middle of the screaming, in the middle of crying out to God, there is a time where sometimes God stays silent. You are like the drowning man who cannot be helped because he clutches and he grabs. And perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you would hope to hear. 
This is an incredibly hard message, I know. But I want you to know that in this process where God feels MIA, God is not sat aloof and God is not sat back. In fact, God is working on your behalf. You see, what the Israelites did not see was that God actually became a cloud and a protector between them and the Israelites throughout the course of the entire night. And had God not moved from in front of them and gone behind them, they would have been overtaken by chariots much faster than them who were coming up the rear of the Israelite camp. I want you to know today, if you cannot see any discernible evidence of God in the process of your deliverance, he has not forsaken you. He has not left you. God is still working on your behalf, even when you can't see it, even when you can't hear it, even when you've had no update from God at all. Do you think Joseph in the pit thought this seems a sensible turn of strategy in order for me to become one of the leaders and to fulfill the dream that I had? He had no idea that God was bringing along a bunch of slave traders who would pick him up and move him into the most, at that time at least in the world, the most important position of power in central Egypt. It might have been nice for God to tell Joseph, hey, you're in this pit, but don't worry, there's going to come along a nice bunch of slave traders. Like a bunch of slave traders. There's going to come along some traders and don't worry, it's all going to work out for you. To the extent we know God didn't tell Joseph that. He did not tell him at all that when you're actually going to get thrown into the prison, don't worry, because there's going to come along a guy who's going to give you the intro to the king and and to Pharaoh of Egypt. God was working on his behalf, and yet so often he will not give you all the answers. He will not provide all of the backstory of what he's doing. But I promise you, if you are walking by faith, if you are serving God, he is working on your behalf. He is going to do a miracle and turn it around. And these are the seasons where you have to be able to stand on the word of God, to stand on this truth that you know to be true, to believe that he is a good father capable of taking care of you. And he will, in his time, bring the deliverance. I want to listen to one of my favorite quotes of any book. The book is called The Screwtape Letters, and for those who are not aware of it, it is a story of um, an older devil trying to teach a younger devil how to bring down Christians and how to thwart the plans of God. The younger devil is called Wormwood, if you hear the name in this quote. Um, What I'm about to read to you is the older devil giving counsel to the younger devil. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. Because at that point, the enemy has got absolutely no tactics left. Because if the situation around you is not enough to defeat you, he has no weaponry left. And that unbelievable act of faith to still obey when every aspect and trace of him seems to have vanished and asks, why have I been forsaken and yet still obeys? And in the middle of this journey across the Red Sea, God asked them, to do what is one of the most difficult acts of faith, which is to walk forward when you can't see God. Move down to verse 15, this final point. Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, is the process by which God brings deliverance. 
The Israelites are crying out to Moses, begging for salvation, begging, in fact, to go back to Egypt. And so God cries out, and so Moses cries out to God. And this is an incredibly funny response. The Lord says to Moses, verse 15, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea onto dry ground. I want you to know that in the process of your deliverance, that there is a participation with God that he is going to invite you into. There is a process in which you are not just merely going to sit there and see the sea part, as it were, but God is going to bring you into active involvement in the process of your deliverance. And I just want to touch on two things really quickly on this. Um, The first is that the process of deliverance may actually involve very natural processes. You know that actually the Red Sea itself was driven back by an east wind, which actually took quite a few hours to drive back the sea and part it. God could have come along and just clicked his fingers and snapped the whole thing open, but God actually uses a very natural, seemingly ordinary process to the extent that scientists back in 2006 actually did a research on what like level of wind would be required and did a modeling scenario of how the Red Sea might have parted. The point being that God is not afraid to use natural processes to bring about your deliverance. And sometimes I found that I, certainly I had a somewhat of a snobbish attitude toward God that if you're going to bring me out of this, like, I want angels, and I want fireworks, and I want clinks and bangs, and, and I was a little bit snobbish if actually sometimes I got a financial deliverance because a friend gave me some money. I was like, huh, really? Like, please, I want money floating from heaven. I want, like, and, and so my, don't, don't despise what seems like an ordinary deliverance. You know that when the manna was provided for the Israelites in Egypt, There's this incredible verse when the Bible says, the minute that the Israelites entered um, the promised land, the manna stopped. And God said, okay, there's milk and there's honey. Go feed yourself. Go plant crops. Go take fruit from trees. God is not afraid of the ordinary, of the seemingly natural, and he will use that in part of your deliverance. And so look out for what seems like the ordinary. Look out for what may not appear at the start incredibly special or remarkable or for an Israelite nation who are pretty used to wind, I assume, uh, seeing a bit of a wind pick up, it didn't seem like much at the start. So God uses an ordinary natural process to bring about their deliverance. The other thing that I find remarkable and that is a huge encouragement to me is I sometimes ask why on earth God chooses to use us at all in the process of our deliverance. I, for one, seem to screw things up pretty often. And how many accounts in the Bible are with individuals just like, I mean, Peter, bless him, really tries, but the guy just can't keep us straight. And yet God continues to persist and use us. And you know what's remarkable about this is that if you look at Moses, a man who I can assume only several months prior dare not even have the guts to go up and stand with Moses and had to ask his uh, brother Aaron to come out and help, 
This is now the guy who is commanding an entire nation of hundreds of thousands to step forward, to be bold, to stand firm, to see the deliverance of God. Look at the transition of Moses' character. Look at the maturity that's happened in this guy over the course of even a few months. And what I found is God often works with us in the process of our deliverance because not only is he trying to deliver you from a situation, but he's trying to heal you through the process of deliverance. He is bringing about redemption to you on the inside while he's bringing you out of redemption on the outside. And this guy who trembling and couldn't dare to even speak to Pharaoh is now boldly leading over 400,000 people through the Red Sea. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says, it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. And what you find in the process of acting in obedience with God, in the process of your deliverance, is that he's ultimately beginning to form your desires and form your will to become more and more like him, to do the things that he would have done. God will never override your free will, but God will form your will through the process of deliverance, through your maturing as a Christian. And what you see here is Moses' first step to becoming bold. Moses' first step to becoming a leader. And God uses the process of deliverance to a large degree to deliver Moses as well. The final aspect I want to talk to you about is what I've entitled a greater deliverance, or I should rather call it the greatest deliverance. It's really important, church, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, to have in mind how does this point me toward Christ the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for instruction and encouraging and edification of the church. The Bible talks about the Old Testament being a foreshadowing of Christ and what is to come. The tabernacle itself being the pivotal example of something that represented the presence of God until it fully came in the person of Christ and now in the person of the Holy Spirit in and in each one of us. And so my encouragement is whenever you're reading the Old Testament, do a quick Google and find out where does this particular passage get referenced in the New Testament, and how might this Old Testament passage be pointing to a greater future reality that is to come in Christ? And this story actually only gets brought up once or twice in the New Testament, but I want to just have you flip over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul talks about the process of the Red Sea and the way in which that translates into salvation under Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. It's a very interesting phrase. They were all baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. What is interesting here is that Paul analogizes the crossing and the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into ultimately the desert and then the promised land as being a baptism, of being a baptism that ultimately comes through the hands of Moses. And what Paul is trying to show here is that baptism itself is an indication of deliverance. 
Baptism itself is very often referred to in the New Testament as a death of sorts, as a transition from one life into the other, as transition from death into life. Moses, uh, Paul talks about us being buried with him in baptism and raised with him into new life. And so what is incredible about this foreshadowing is it points to a greater baptism that was to come, which is the baptism of Christ. And fundamentally, though the story of the Red Sea is an unbelievable miracle and testimony about the way in which God can deliver and will deliver and turn around any situation, the truth, church, is that though Moses' baptism, bringing the Israelites through the Red Sea, out of Egypt was remarkable and was told and is told for hundreds and thousands of years later Moses' baptism brought the Israelites out of Egypt but Moses' baptism could not get Egypt out of the Israelites and for the next 40 years they would wander around the desert not because they were trapped by the Egyptians because they were trapped by Egypt inside of them because under their oppression, they had learned to think a certain way, they had learned to believe a certain thing, and God would not allow them to transition into their promised land until Egypt had been rid of them. And the great frustration of the nation of Israel is that though God redeemed them, and that though God gave them the law through Moses, the law did not provide the Israelites with any way to fulfill its commands. What is beautiful about the baptism of Christ, which is greater than the baptism of Moses, is yes, God is here to deliver you out of sickness, out of oppression, out of the parts of our lives that we don't like, but it has the power to deliver that sin out of us too. The Bible says that the process of salvation is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. God now gives us the power to live the life that ultimately that baptism pointed to which is not just redemption from situations, but dare even say redemption from our flesh, redemption from ourselves, redemption from our sin, to increasingly look like the one who baptized us. That was something that Moses could never bring about in his baptism. He could never bring the Israelites out of their mode of thinking and out of the internal bondage that they still carried. And as much as we should rejoice and give testimony, and you are going to have testimonies if you will stand in faith, follow God's word, stand on his scripture, you will have remarkable testimonies. But if you only want deliverance so that it can get you a step closer to your conception of the good life, so that you can get rid of all pain, all discomfort, so you can have every dream and every desire, though those things are good, and I believe in a father who delights in giving good gifts, there is a greater reality to your deliverance, and it is a deliverance from sinfulness into righteousness. It is a deliverance from selfishness into Christ-likeness. It is a baptism that not only changes your outside, but it changes your inside. The greatest deliverance today is not even redemption from the circumstance that you're praying for. It is redemption from a sinful way of living that God, by his spirit, gives us the power to come out of, to be like Christ, to walk like Christ, to desire the things that Christ did, and bring that freedom to those around us. So will you stand, church? I'm going to wrap up there. But today I want you to think about the aspects of your life that you're crying out to God for deliverance. I want you to know that he is a good father. 
He is so fully aware of every part of your life that you are seeking like the Red Sea, crying out to God that it would just part. Crying out to God that he would just open it up. He's fully aware of every time you go home and cry. Every time you read your Bible and look at your life and there's just a big disconnect. I think I have Michaela or one of the guys come up. And for some of you today, this is really about standing firm. This is the verse for you today. Stand firm and you will see the salvation of God. To not give way. To not change the subject. To not believe that you have to lower your vision, lower your expectations. To refuse to allow the enemy to dictate your actions by your circumstances. And I just want to encourage you. I want to pray with you. I want to strengthen you like Moses' friends held up his arms in battle. For some of you, that's what you need. Some of you, to have someone stand by you, to hold up your arms in the process of your deliverance. Though for some of you, there's a deeper question which is you think the ultimate reality of your faith is for God to deliver you from situations. It's to ultimately placate every part of your life that feels uncomfortable, to answer every single one of your prayers. And hear me, he isn't good, Father. He has given me above anything that I could imagine. He has blessed me with nearly every dream that I ever asked for as a, as a, as a young man growing up. But in the process of giving me those things, he taught me to not cling to them. And for some of you, you need to come before God and say, Jesus, I want the greater baptism. I want the real baptism that is a change on the inside. That is a process of deliverance from my own ways of thinking. That is a process of deliverance from sinful cycles that do not bring me any life at all. Jesus, I have to believe that your baptism heals my inside as much as it does my outside. And so while the keys are playing, I want you to do some business with God. There's going to be people up at the front here with prayer badges. And if you fit in one of those two camps and you want someone to pray with you, we would love to be able to serve to you and minister to you today. I want you to know that the God who parted the Red Sea is still parting Red Seas today. He is still bringing remarkable testimonies of deliverance. But there is something even greater than just even the deliverance from our own circumstances. And I want us as a church to pursue and to run after both. It is the greater baptism. It is the greatest deliverance. This is the Sunday Morning Podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.